It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Previously on Breakdown. At this time, in the interest of justice and the rights of not the state but others, we are asking that the report not be released because you haven't seen that report. Decisions are imminent. There's enormous public interest in what they have said, and that exists in this state, it exists across the nation, it exists beyond the nation. And we believe the statutory law supports its public release right now. We believe the case law supports its public release right now. And we believe constitutional law, including our own state constitution, requires its release right now. This is not simple. I think the fact that we had to discuss this for 90 minutes shows that it is somewhat extraordinary, uh, Mr. Clyde. Um, partly what's extraordinary is what's at issue here, um, the alleged interference with the presidential election. But it's also extraordinary in the plain meaning of that word is that it, it's not ordinary to have special purpose grand juries doing things. That doesn't mean, however, that there hasn't been a course of conduct developed over time as to what happens with special purpose grand jury reports or presentments. Um, it also doesn't mean that we can't, I can't figure out a way to assess the final report through the lens of grand jury secrecy and the statutory scheme for grand juries. As you heard in our crossover episode with Politically Georgia, portions of the special purpose grand jury's final report were made public. Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney released about two-thirds of the nine-page report on February 16th. To recap, the big takeaways are The special grand jury said it heard extensive testimony on the subject of alleged election fraud from poll workers, investigators, technical experts, and state of Georgia officials and employees, as well as from persons still claiming fraud took place. And it said, we find by a unanimous vote that no widespread fraud took place in the Georgia 2020 presidential election that could result in overturning the election. It said a majority of the grand jury believes that perjury may have been committed by one or more witnesses testifying before it. And it recommends that the district attorney seek appropriate indictments for such crimes where the evidence is compelling. As expected, it said it provided its recommendations for indictments with the relevant statutes. And, interestingly, it said it's including its vote tallies on each topic, with yay, nay, and abstain votes recorded. And it said the report will include footnotes for where a juror wanted the opportunity to clarify his or her vote for any reason. It said there's going to be an appendix attached to the report with a complete set of Georgia statutes that come into play. The special grand jury thanked the hardworking attorneys and staff from the DA's office, and it said any legal errors in the report should not be laid at their feet because the DA's office had nothing to do with the report's recommendations. Finally, the report said if the special grand jury fails to include any potential violations of Georgia law that were shown in the investigation, it acknowledged that D.A. Fonnie Willis can seek indictments where she finds sufficient cause. It concluded, This grand jury contained no election law experts or criminal lawyers. 
The majority of this grand jury used their collective best efforts, however, to attend every session, listen to every witness, and attempt to understand the facts as presented and the laws as explained. Interestingly, it said a majority of the grand jury members did that. Makes me wonder if there were some who did not use their best efforts to attend every session, listen to every witness, and try to understand all the facts. That's not surprising. It's like working on a group project in high school. There are always some people who carry the team and others who try and coast by. And it said if the court finds its reports to have satisfied the special grand jury's mission, quote, we request that we be formally discharged from our service. Sounds like they were ready to stop driving down to the courthouse a few times every week and get on with their normal lives. After eight months, who could blame them? Also, an addendum was attached in which the special grand jury recommended its report be published, but it said it did not have a recommendation for a manner or a time for that to happen. So it was interesting to see at least some of the report. But there's a lot more interesting stuff that we have yet to see. In his order, issued three days before the report's release, Judge Robert McBurney wrote the special grand jury, quote, provided the district attorney with exactly what she requested, a roster of who should or should not be indicted and for what, in relation to the conduct and aftermath of the 2020 general election in Georgia. I just wonder who all is on that roster. Absolutely. So how did we get here? All that and more in a minute. This is episode 25, Reading Between the Lines, of season 9 of Breakdown, The Trump Grand Jury, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Breakdown, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's podcast covering Georgia's most important cases. I'm Bill Rankin, the AJC's legal affairs reporter. And I'm senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. When we last left you, Judge McBurney was mulling over the news media's request to make the totality of the final report public and the DA's request to keep it all under wraps, at least until a decision on whether to seek indictments was made. On Monday morning, February 13th, McBurney issues an eight-page order explaining why he's releasing only three portions of the report for now the introduction, conclusion, and passage about possible perjury. And he says the special grand jury fulfilled its mission. McBurney rejects arguments from the AJC and other media outlets that the final report should be made public because it is a court record, but he notes the special grand jurors had voted for the report to be made public and, 
If that happens, the law says he must order its publication. Still, McBurney writes, quote, But, as with many things in the law, it's not that simple. And he cites those court precedents we've talked about in prior episodes that say special grand jury reports cannot impugn an individual's character since they're not formal indictments. He also notes that the special grand jury was largely controlled by the DA's office, and defense attorneys were not allowed to go inside the room and argue on their client's behalf. And they also were not allowed to present mitigating evidence or call their own witnesses. He called it a one-sided exploration. At the very least, McBurney says those who appeared before the special grand jury, voluntarily or not, had the opportunity to be heard. Still, he says they were not afforded the type of due process we require in a court of law. He also adds, quote, This is particularly true if the grand jury's final report includes recommendations involving individuals who never appeared before the grand jury and so had no opportunity, limited or not, to be heard. And he writes this pretty telling passage, quote, Put differently, there was very limited due process in this process for those who might now be named as indictment-worthy in the final report. That does not mean that the district attorney's investigative process was flawed or improper in any way unconstitutional. By all appearances, the special purpose grand jury did its work by the book. Those who might now be named as indictment-worthy? The judge is tiptoeing around this with qualifiers, but the message is crystal clear. Absolutely. And of course, if no one is being recommended for indictment, I can't imagine McBurney would be going through this exercise. Exactly. Okay, McBurney says he's keeping sections under wraps because, quote, fundamental fairness requires this. Those recommendations are for the district attorney's eyes only, for now. He adds that while publication of these three sections, quote, may not be convenient for the pacing of the district attorney's investigation, the compelling public interest in these proceedings and the unquestionable value and importance of transparency require their release. So the only question remaining was, would the DA's office appeal the order? If so, that would mean we wouldn't have even been able to see the three sections McBurney said would be released. But just a few hours after McBurney issued his order, DA Willis released a statement saying there would be no appeal. And later that afternoon, Willis testified before a state legislative committee over possible anti-gang legislation. Here's what she told reporters when asked about McBurney's order. The audio, courtesy of our friend Richard Elliott at WSB-TV. I thought that he um, listened to the arguments of the state and that his order basically did what we asked. So I'm very pleased with his order. Before we move on from Judge McBurney's order, some legal observers have seized on one section of it, specifically a sentence in which the judge explained that he was holding back portions of the final report out of concerns of fundamental fairness to those who are named and in particular his concern for fairness to those who never appeared before the grand jury and could be among those recommended to be indicted. Several legal commentators we spoke to think that one of those people could be former President Donald Trump. Remember, his lawyer said Trump was not subpoenaed, nor was he asked to appear voluntarily before the grand jury. I do think that when Judge McBurney said that part of the reason that he was allowing redaction for the moment of 
portions of the report was to protect the due process rights of those named in the report who did not appear before the grand jury, that that was either very likely or certainly a reference to Donald Trump. That's Breakdown Regular Norm Eisen. He co-authored the Brookings Institute report on the Fulton investigation. We know because of his counsel's statement when the special grand jury was reported, including by the AJC, to have concluded its business, that Trump didn't appear. His lawyers proclaimed that he was not invited to appear, and they inferred innocence from that. There's no requirement under Georgia law for the DA to invite him. Former President Trump posted statements on his social media platform, Truth Social, just a few hours after the portions of the report were made public. He repeated the claim he's made in the past. Here's one. The long-awaited important sections of the Georgia report, which do not even mention President Trump's name, have nothing to do with the president because President Trump did absolutely nothing wrong. The president participated in two perfect phone calls regarding election integrity in Georgia, which he is entitled to do. In fact, as president, it was President Trump's constitutional duty to ensure election safety, security, and integrity. He continued, Between the two calls, there were many officials and attorneys on the line, including the Secretary of State of Georgia, and no one objected, even slightly protested, or hung up. President Trump will always keep fighting for true and honest elections in America. That's a reference to Trump's infamous January 2nd, 2021 phone conversation with Brad Raffensperger, which was recorded and leaked to the press. Raffensperger and his office's counsel, Ryan Germany, strenuously objected to what Trump was saying throughout the call. Trump didn't specify what the second phone call was, but it was likely his leaked phone call with Francis Watson who was then an investigator in the Secretary of State's office in December 2020. Then Trump posted this on Truth Social. Thank you to the special grand jury in the great state of Georgia for your patriotism and courage. Total exoneration. The USA is very proud of you! Exclamation point. Here's Norm Eisen again. Well, obviously, Donald Trump lives in a parallel universe where down is up, left is right, and south is north. Of his 30,000-plus lies that were cataloged by the press and fact-checkers, the most dangerous and deadly, the crescendo to which the stream of falsehoods built was uh, the big lie that he actually won the 2020 election in Georgia and elsewhere. He didn't. Joe Biden won and that the election was stolen from him. It wasn't. So this is yet another falsehood because there was no exoneration. And to the extent Donald Trump was talked about this critical conclusion that we just discussed, it was a repudiation. It was a total repudiation. So that and his other statements about the special grand jury report, that wasn't the only one, were false, more falsehoods. And I think they're going to be legally damaging because some of these things he said are going to potentially come in at trial or sentencing. We got back in touch with John Malcolm, a former federal prosecutor in Atlanta, 
who's now with the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank in Washington. We spoke with him pretty extensively in episode 23. Here, he addresses Trump's first post. His claims that these were perfect calls, and I would not uh, use that word for any conversation that former President Trump had, although I have pointed out the last time that we spoke that everybody who has said, well, it's very clear in this call that he directed Brad Raffensperger to find whatever the number of votes are that would have put him over the top. Uh, I have I have said, and I'll stand by it, the transcript of that is available, so we don't have to guess as to what it is we said, and that that interpretation is equivocal at best. Uh, a perfect call? No. But clear evidence that he was telling the Secretary of State of Georgia to do something improper, to, to literally manufacture votes uh, that uh, either by throwing out votes that had been cast for Joe Biden or finding votes uh, that have, were hitherto uncounted for, for Donald Trump. I do not think that is clear at all. His second statement that this uh, grand jury report all three paragraphs of it or however many are there uh, constitutes an exoneration. Um, I think that's a stretch. We asked Malcolm about the special grand jury making note that it was unanimous in its belief that no widespread fraud took place to overturn the result of the 2020 election in Georgia and how it might relate to Trump's ongoing claims. Could a conclusion like that from the special grand jury undermine a potential argument from Trump and his allies that they had no criminal intent? Okay, I'll, I will take them at their word that they did a thorough investigation and that that is indeed their unanimous opinion. It is not enough to prove that the election in Georgia was not stolen. You have to prove that the people who said, we think it was stolen, really didn't believe that at the time. They may even have been completely unreasonable in their belief. It's one thing to say, look, these people were delusional and they were wrong and the election wasn't stolen. But there were a lot of people who had that belief. And there are people whom I know who still have that belief. So this is the tough thing. It is only germane to intent. If you can show that at the time the evidence was so overwhelming that the election had not been stolen at that time, that He knew, not even that he has to have known that what he was saying wasn't true, that he in fact knew that the election had not been stolen, but he said it anyway. Eisen, who advised House Democrats during the first Trump impeachment, sees the grand jury's conclusion quite differently. It was politically important because the special grand jury went out of their way to say that the 23 of them decided unanimously that there was no evidence of sufficiently widespread fraud in Georgia. I really think that that was a knife thrust into the heart of Trump's election denialism, but it was also legally important because it's what we lawyers call a predicate. It's a necessary starting point to bring the kind of criminal charges that were already likely before we saw these pages from the report that probably are recommended in the seven sections that were redacted. Just the sheer number of sections tells you something, I believe. And it also knocks the stuffing out of Trump's defenses. 
And here's Anthony Michael Kreiss. He's a constitutional law professor at Georgia State University and a presidential historian who's closely following the investigation. This line was probably the least best, you know, or maybe the most bad news for anybody who is subject and targeted in this investigation because the key element for many of these crimes that might be in the mix uh, is intent. And if you can show that, right, unanimously a jury of 23 people of Fulton County looked at the evidence and said, you know, there was no evidence of irregularities or fraud or wrongdoing. This election in Georgia was clean and transparent. That's incredibly important because it can speak to that intent element, right? And then we'd have to ask, well, when did Donald Trump or some of these other folks know or should have known that the election was clean, right? Um, And if there's evidence to suggest that the conclusion that the grand jurors ultimately had about the fairness and and uh, you know accuracy of the election, um, the sooner you can show that these potential defendants knew that was also true, um, the easier, more likely it is to bring a case that you can actually get a conviction on. So, so I think that's really important, uh, you know, for the criminal justice process, for the decisions of who to charge or not to charge or how to charge people as a matter of, you know, kind of, do I go for a RICO or do I go for independent discrete charges? You know, all that might play into account. And of course, it's really a, a validation of election administration here in Georgia and, and democracy. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. We also asked our legal experts to weigh in on the potential for perjury charges. That was one of the most surprising revelations when Judge McBurney announced he'd be releasing portions of the report last week. Under Georgia law, a person convicted of lying under oath can be punished with a fine of up to $1,000 and or 1 to 10 years in prison. Separately, perjury is considered a predicate act under Georgia's racketeering statute, which we know D.A. Willis had been looking at more broadly. But perjury is notoriously hard to prove in court, and I've personally sat through countless criminal trials and felt someone was lying on the stand in about 75% of them. But rarely are people ever charged. Here's Christ again. When you charge somebody for perjury, you have to prove that they knowingly and willingly made a false statement about something material. So a mistake is not going to count, um, right? Misremembering is not going to count as convictable perjury. Um, even being misleading is not perjury, so long as you said the truth, right? So there's a really famous Supreme Court case where somebody basically was asked, well, did you ever have bank accounts in Switzerland? And the response was, no, I did not. And then the follow-up was, well, did your company have bank accounts in Switzerland? And the response was, yes, I had them in Zurich for the company. Now, everybody knew what the first answer was attempting right, to, to elicit, but the fact that the witness was being misleading and, and was not being forthcoming, that's not perjury. 
There's some gray area regarding what the special grand jury was asserting. First off, we have no idea who they're referring to. Jurors said they believed perjury might have been committed, and they called on the DA to seek indictments where she can find compelling evidence. But they cite no evidence for why they suspect people might have lied. Did they get bad vibes from a witness while they were testifying? Or maybe what they were told conflicts with testimony that same person gave to the January 6th committee, or what related folks said separately under oath. Here's Kreis. They may very well have evidence or evidence may be uncovered to suggest or show that perjury was actually committed, and maybe that's a a case down the road. But to say definitively right now that there's perjury charges and they're ripe for the making and people are going to get flipped and become state's evidence as a consequence is just, right, that's just a bridge too far. So it's, it's telling, but it doesn't tell us a lot. So could the DA's office try and use the threat of perjury charges to get targets to strike deals? A good lawyer would probably say, yeah, where's your evidence? Show me, show me what you've got, right? Uh, without showing your cards, I'm going to say it's so hard to prove perjury, um, you're just blowing smoke and you've got nothing else, right? And I'd walk out of the room. Christ thinks there are other statutes prosecutors are more likely to use to get smaller targets to help them catch bigger targets. He's mentioned potentially using laws about filing false documents, for example, to flip some of the more minor GOP electors. That, I think, is a much more likely possibility because that's an easier case to prove in the first place. So I don't think that it's implausible that there isn't some wheeling and dealing happening or about to happen. I just don't think perjury is probably in that mix. Another tidbit that caught our interest is that jurors included tallies for how many of them agreed that certain people should be charged with crimes. Of course, they only made recommendations and D.A. Willis can do what she wants, but she'd presumably get more political cover if she pursues indictments for people who got an overwhelming number of votes from jurors. Exactly. She'd really have to explain herself if she sought indictments for players whom jurors were closely divided over. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Here's Norm Eisen on the matter. They're not always going to be unanimous on every single charge. And I think it will be interesting to see the exact tallies. It's not unusual when you have these unprecedented acts of wrongdoing to have citizens have different reactions. One of the most surprising revelations is just how short the final report appears to be. After nearly eight months investigating and hearing from some 75 witnesses, taking a peerless dive into pressures to overturn Georgia's last presidential elections, jurors are only going to give us nine pages and an appendix? It certainly won't be the more than 800-page tome that the January 6th committee produced late last year with lots of summaries and findings or even what we saw from past special grand juries in Georgia with final reports that clocked in at several dozen pages each. In fact, we might see little beyond a list of recommendations for who should or should not be indicted. Christ says he's personally disappointed as a law professor and political historian at the apparent brevity. I think we're just going to get bare bones. Here's the vibes that we got. Here's the general feeling that we got about what happened. Here's our recommendations and the votes of those recommendations. Good luck. And and maybe that's, you know, disappointing for people 
like myself who wanted a, a more thorough document because I think it's important for democracy and important for preventing, uh, you know, election subversion and denialism in the future. So I, you know, I, I was looking for that. But if you're a prosecutor, right, so somebody who's not necessarily thinking about it in the 40,000 foot level that I might be, uh, you don't want to have all your evidence out there because you don't want to give away things that you know, too early, or you don't want to perhaps create a narrative or fuel a narrative that could be useful for a defense attorney to, to grab onto down the road. We heard that last point from a couple of legal minds this week, including breakdown regular Danny Porter, the former district attorney from Gwinnett County. The more words and details you include in a final report, the more hungry defense attorneys have to work with. John Malcolm also gave an interesting take on the report's brevity. All of the evidence that was presented to the special grand jury was presented by the district attorney. The district attorney knows what that evidence is. So they're not telling the district attorney something that she doesn't already know. All they are saying is, well, we heard all of this stuff. If you want to know what it is that we think about it, here's what we think about it. You can either do that in a very fulsome fashion or you can do that in a summary fashion. They obviously opted for uh, brevity being the soul of wit. In other words, the DA has all the evidence the jurors saw. If she wants to indict people, she can use all that evidence, whether the jurors included it in their final report or not. And some of that information will end up surfacing publicly. She's going to have to turn over the evidence that she has as part of the discovery process to the defendants once they're charged. Uh, And ultimately, a lot of that information will come out. I mean, you'll start to learn more about it in in motions that are filed uh, by the defendants, whatever motions to suppress evidence or whatever whatever motions are going to file. If there are any pleas, you're going to hear something about the evidence. I mean, the nature of that evidence will, I suspect, I won't be fully disclosed, but a lot of it will be ultimately disclosed. So as you can tell, we had quite a week. After two years, this criminal investigation is moving into a new stage where the stakes are higher. Indictments could be around the corner. Big names could be showing up at the Fulton County Sheriff's Office for a mugshot and to get their fingerprints taken. It's almost hard to fathom. We're already starting to feel the weight of the world's attention. We've come across so many hot takes on social media and from cable news pundits that are maybe a little too hot. So we'd figure we'd pass along this note of caution from Professor Christ. We need to be very cautious. This is, you know, this is not a game. It's criminal justice. It's prosecution. It's the power of the state to deprive people of, of liberty, right, if, if they're convicted. And, and so it's important that we get this right and that we search for truth, which means being Patient. And it also means, yes, I think there's plenty of room for speculation, right? We can we can read the tea leaves responsibly and, and do that in a fair way that's justified based on evidence. But, you know, people looking for, you know, cues in Judge McBurney's order to say Donald Trump is definitely getting indicted and it's happening in the next two weeks, that's nuts. But to also look at the report that came out, um, you know, in its limited form and to say, well, this is nothing and Donald Trump is off, you know, off the hook and free is also equally just unserious. So I think we need to be cautious in our analysis. We need to be patient and we need to let the process roll out and, and to naturally develop. Amen to that. By the way, I caught up with D.A. Willis recently when she testified before a state legislative committee. 
I asked her what she meant by imminent with respect to deciding on indictments. She said, legally imminent, not reporter imminent. Reporter imminent means any day now. Looks like it's going to be a bit longer than that. We'll, of course, keep you updated on the latest developments. But before we leave, we want to share something about Norm Eisen that is quite moving. He's had quite a career. He's been a criminal defense attorney for decades. As we mentioned, he assisted the House Judiciary Committee during Trump's first impeachment trial. Before that, in 2009, President Barack Obama, Eisen's classmate at Harvard University Law School, named Eisen the White House ethics czar. And during that stint, he became known as Dr. No, because he insisted that members of the Obama administration strictly adhere to ethics rules. Then, in 2011, Obama named him ambassador to the Czech Republic, which is a poignant part of Eisen's life story. And it's why he says he's so intensely focused on the events after the 2020 election. Of course, Georgia is the place, I think, in the entire country where the sharpest edge of that attempted coup was felt. Because uh, I I know how uh, fragile democracies can be. Both my parents were Holocaust survivors. My mom, uh, Auschwitz survivor. My dad, a Holocaust refugee, ran from Europe to the United States and made it here, last boat out of Greece in 1940. And uh, when I, I had the privilege of serving as ambassador to my mother's home country of the Czech Republic. And the house that I lived in as ambassador was the headquarters of the Nazi occupying Wehrmacht in World War II. And uh, those were the same Nazi occupiers who issued the orders to send my mother and her family from then Czechoslovakia to Auschwitz. And I went back to that house as ambassador. Uh, I made the house kosher. We observed the Jewish Sabbath there every week. Every time I had a kosher lamb chop, I would say, take that, Hitler. And and so my family history, not just my mom's story, she was so proud when I went back to her country representing the United States, uh, but my dad's as well of escaping from Europe, uh, coming to this country as an undocumented migrant, joining the army to become a citizen. Um, that story has taught me both of them fled what had been flourishing democracies And it taught me how fragile a democracy is. And we came oh so close. So that's why I continue to work on and to cover the events of 2020. You know, we have a saying uh, when we talk about the Holocaust never again. We have to bring that to our American democracy. And when, when it comes to the attempted coup, the assault on our democracy, election denial, which is so similar. We have to have that same motto, never again. And that's why I think these likely coming charges in Georgia are so important because uh, American democracy, democracy anywhere, very fragile. And I won't compare to the horror of what consumed Europe, but I will note that that horror also started with attacks Uh, on democracies, much weaker democracies than we have here in the United States. So we must never take, even though the two situations are very different, we must never take our democracy, any democracy, for granted. 
when he talked about his mom being sent to Auschwitz and then living in the very house where those orders were given, I realized I had tears in my eyes. We'll be back soon. As always, thanks so very much for listening. Breakdown Sound Engineer is Shane Backler. Our podcast program manager is Jay Black. Thanks to our presentation specialist, Pete Corson, our editors, Jennifer Brett, Dan Kleppel, and Shannon McCaffrey, our managing editor, Leroy Chapman, and Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. And if you really want to support local journalism, please subscribe to the AJC. Be safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Tamar Hallerman. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.